Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Learning with the Lion, a community read-through of the Gospel of Mark. Over the summer of 2023, members of the Ligonier community are coming together to walk through a 13-week exploration of Jesus' life, practicing reading the Bible together and asking what it means for everyday life. For more information, visit epiphanyligonier.org mark, where you can also sign up for our companion e-newsletter. Question for you this morning. What do President Barack Obama, comic Jimmy Fallon, actress Reese Witherspoon, pop star Mariah Carey, professional wrestler John Cena, figure skater Christy Yamaguchi, parody musician Weird Al Yankovic, NBA all-star LeBron James, and HGTV star Joanna Gaines all have in common, besides the fact that they're all famous and have more money than us, <laughs> what do they all have in common? Well, I have just given you a list of some of the most notable authors of children's books that you can buy on the market today. Have you noticed this trend? Maybe not. It's become the hip thing now for celebrities, for politicians, for singers, musicians, anyone with a public recognition to write children's books. And they're beautifully illustrated and they are sought after by large publishing companies and they want to sell these books not to little kids but to the parents of the little kids. <laughs> who recognize the celebrities in the readings. Um, I hear Julie Andrews has a couple of fantastic ones, by the way, but I also hear that the ones Madonna wrote are just garbage, so stay away from those if you're curious. Um, but it seems these days that everyone has a lesson for the kids, that even story time can become classroom time. The celebrities, musicians, politicians, all of it. And we want to, they want to be good patriots, and so people will read their kids' books written about and by and for good patriots, so that maybe they'll become politicians. Maybe the kids, they want, parents want their kids to be popular, and so they read them books by people who are popular. Or they want to be their kids to be musicians, and so they read their children's stories about musicians by uh, authors who are musicians. Did you know that rock legends Guns N' Roses wrote a children's book? You can already guess the title, right? Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we read these books to our kids, and these books are there, and there's a market for them, because we think that using them to, to, to read our kids' bedtime will help them become the adults we want them to be. Um, that, that we can use these books to turn our children into, you know, progressive Democrats or conservative Republicans or capitalists or socialists or environmentalists or Second Amendment advocates and we could read our kids stories about the joys of being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or an architect. Um, we, can, we can read stories that encourage our kids to, to, to be nice and to share and, and to look both ways before crossing the street. And of course, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, as we're working to raise our kids, the kids in our life, of course we want to raise them well, but I want to consider for a moment what it looks like to turn the table. I want to ask this morning a question that's on Jesus' heart. What does it look like to, to reverse this role? Instead of us trying to inform and mold our children, 
um, what does it look like to ask how our kids, how the kids of this church, how all kids might inform and mold us as adults in matters of, of faith and of life and of love and matters of God? Um, that's one of the core convictions Jesus shares in our reading today from uh, the Gospel of Mark. It's a long reading. Thank you again, Lori, for helping me go through it. But uh, part of what Jesus is doing is in our reading today is he's outlining this vision for the kingdom of God. And as he's doing so, he's trying to explain how the kingdom of God is unlike anything the ancient world has known or experienced before. And he goes through a number of facets of life to talk about how, how his death and resurrection is going to change the way we understand the world. But over and over and over again, you'll notice in the reading that the disciples don't get it. They're boneheaded. Um, it's a reading that begins with their failure to drive out demons. It, it begins with their arguing about who's the greatest, and it ends with two of the disciples making a power play uh, for a position in the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, they don't understand what Jesus is going to do. So Jesus is constantly rebuking, correcting, uh, shutting down, redirecting, finger-wagging his top 12. And he's doing so because they don't understand all of the implications of what it looks like for Jesus to die and rise again. So today I want us to, to explore a bit of counterculture. Because the reality is, is Jesus' teachings um, from that era, our culture hasn't really acclimated to them either. Things are different now, and in some ways they're better, in some ways they're not. But Jesus' words have challenges for every culture and every time ours included. And so I want to explore, uh, particularly today, I want to explore three aspects of God's kingdom that turn all of us who follow Jesus into this countercultural um, person who goes against the grain of the world around us. I want to talk about marriage, I want to talk about uh, kids, I want to talk about money. Uh, right? The only three of the most important things in anybody's life, right? Marriage, kids, and money. And by talking about them and looking through Jesus' teaching, I hope to, to, to impart upon you um, that the kingdom of God does change everything. And that if Jesus died and rose again, and if Jesus is going to die and rise again, then we, by virtue of following Jesus, are going to be different from the rest of the world. And, and that's not a bad thing. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about um, money, marriage, and kids and money. And so we'll start off with a word about marriage. In our reading today, Jesus has a, a harsh word to say about marriage. It sounds very grating to our modern ears. Um, the Pharisees approached Jesus to ask questions about divorce. And if you remember earlier on in Mark's gospel, um, it was questions about divorce and what, is a good, good, what does divorce look like that got John the Baptist arrested and eventually beheaded. And so we should see the Pharisees asking questions about divorce as trying to put a target on Jesus' back for King Herod, um, who has already executed John the Baptist, perhaps the Pharisees hope they'll get, he'll get Jesus too. And his response to the Pharisees is theologically rich. Jesus says, you know, humans are, are, are this is a fallen world with people have hard hearts. And so when it comes to matters of divorce, yeah, there is something in the law of Moses that says divorce is, is permitted. But ultimately, the vision for what God wants is a lifelong unbreakable union between a man and a woman. Now, of course, we know in our own time, um, we, we still have space for these things, right? For, for infidelity, for abuse. These are, these are things that, that are very complicated. But Jesus says in a perfect world, when people are married, it's lifelong, it's permanent, it's unbreakable. And later, though, when he talks to his disciples, um, he goes on to say that that remarriage 
is also not okay because it goes against this idea of lifelong unbreakable union. And this would have been a challenge to the ancient world that Jesus was ministering in because they had a very lopsided view of marriage. In this time, right, marriage was patriarchal, right? It was political. It was about social status. And the women had no say in the matter. The men held all the cards, the fathers of the bride and the fathers of the groom. The groom, they were the ones in charge. And many of them would use the threat of divorce or use the practice of divorce as a way to control and manipulate the woman that they had married to gain higher social status and political access. Contemporary rabbis of Jesus, for example, people who were rabbis about the same time and same era, they suggested that the cause for divorce could be incredibly low. They said that, uh, famously, one rabbi said that a, a wife could simply be divorced if she burned the toast for breakfast. Like that was the level of, of um, flippancy which these rabbis held marriage. And so to them, Jesus' word on this teaching would be shocking, not only because divorce is supposed, uh, not only because marriage is lifelong and unbreakable, uh, but, but the men were just as liable to be as sinful as the women when it comes to this practice. Um, people sometimes talk about Jesus having a bit of a feminist streak, and you kind of see this in our reading. Jesus says that, the, that, that, that men themselves would be subject to God's wrath for not caring for and appreciating their wives and treating them poorly, especially when it comes to matters of divorce and subsequent remarriage. In our time, we don't necessarily treat marriage, I think, as flippantly as they did. Certainly, we all recognize culturally that you don't divorce somebody just for burning the toast. Um, things are different in our age, and I think they, they're more in line with what Jesus would want. But the problems of our age are not necessarily... Uh, matters of divorce, it's matters of marriage to begin with. Um, that in our time, you know, marriage is viewed differently. Back then it was patriarchal, it was political, it was about gaining social ground. And in our time, uh, it's about romance, it's about um, attraction, it's about finding a soulmate, it's about chemistry. And the problem, of course, is that what happens when, when love and romance fade especially when life gets hard. And what happens when someone else comes along and you begin to consider, well, what if that other person was actually supposed to be my soulmate and I, I made a mistake? And so, especially for younger folks, my generation and younger, the, the question isn't about really even divorce at all. It's just, do I really want to lock myself down when something better could be around? And so, so younger generations, they just don't want to get married at all because they don't want to commit now because something may be better in the future. You know, um... Uh, I'm a young guy, I'm a millennial, God help me, and um, I've been married 11 years. Do you know how weird that makes me in, in my community? Most of my peers, that's not the case. In fact, only 44% of my generation of people are married, right? Less than half of my peers are married at this point. And, and, and so it's a different side of Jesus' teaching, but it's the same teaching, right? Jesus cares very deeply about marriage. And, it's, and, and Jesus cares deeply about marriage and says it's good and it's godly and it's what, what's supposed to happen and it's part of the, the fabric of the cosmos and yet our modern age does not agree that marriage is that important or that it's something worth um, studying at all. Um, and so we have Jesus giving a countercultural presentation of marriage that goes against the patriarchy and the status of the ancient world and it goes against the sort of romantic soulmate mythos of our own time. So Jesus' view on marriage challenges both times. Now let's shift to children. 
Twice in our reading, the disciples are asked to consider that their faith should be understood through the lens of childhood. Um, it's an example of how the 12 have their priorities mixed up as they bicker among themselves who is the greatest. Jesus invites a child into their midst. Imagine, as it were, a young child being brought into a boardroom setting, right? That, that, that this is a high-status area, and a child enters in, and the dynamic completely changes. And Jesus says, uh, and he takes the child in his arms. The text says that, and I think that's beautiful and wonderful that he does this. He takes the child in his arms, and Jesus explains that true greatness, it's not about success, it's about service. That if you really want to, to, to understand what it means to be great and good, it's about emptying of yourself to serve others. And he brings the child and says, you know, implicitly, who else um, can you serve who needs it desperately and who will never pay you back for it? It's a child. They just, they can't. So Jesus says that there's something about raising, about, about investing in serving kids that's really reflective of the kingdom of God. And it's reflective of his ministry. In the ancient world, you know, kids didn't have a whole lot of, of social clout. Um, the kids weren't a part of the societal structure. They were like the lowest of the low on the totem pole. It was only when kids got to be a little older that they could kind of help out around the house or help out on the farm that kids had any sort of social value. Up until that point, kids were basically excess mouth to feed, mouths to feed. They were not a priority in that time and in that place. And so you can see that, right? Because later on, parents are going to bring children to Jesus for a blessing. And the disciples think the appropriate thing is to, like, no, get out of here. They don't, they don't matter. Jesus got bigger, more important things to do. Get them out of here. In our time, I think things have flipped, and I think for the better. Um, the social value of children is, is something that we have as a priority, right? Children are the target of our social concerns. Our poor kids, we feed them, whether they're ours or not. We don't have orphanages anymore in the States, right? We have foster families, right? We, we, we've figured out other ways to take care of children who are without homes and parentless. And violence against children is an especially heinous act, and, and rightly so. But there's also a sense in our society that children um, have become extensions of the identity of their parents, right? Maybe you've heard this term helicopter parenting that um, sociologists and scholars are talking about. And they're saying that, that children, right, the act of raising a children, parents give so much into their children, not for their children's benefit, but because how their children turns out reflects back on them and their righteousness and their status in the community. And so you see this, right, when children are forced into doing sports or music lessons that they don't actually want to do, or when they're pressured into internships and extracurricular activities that they don't want to do, um, that parents, that people are more in interested in controlling and dictating the lives of the children than allowing them to sort of grow up on their own terms and engage in their own ways. You see it when um, parents are yelling at Little League games at the, at the volunteer coach, and you see it when parents try to wiggle their way into college admissions uh, interviews, which is a trend. I've got friends in higher ed. They're banging their heads against the wall. Um, so the, the ancient world, right, they, invested, they did not invest in young children at all. And in our time, perhaps, um, we've, we've over-invested to the point where they become status symbols for the adults who are raising them. Um, and you see it when parents buy children's books written by celebrities and pop stars and politicians, if nothing else. But then the matter of Jesus comes up again in our reading when Jesus does rebuke his disciples and says, no. He says, let the children come to me because to get into heaven at all, to understand what's going on, you need to have faith like a child. 
you need to look at the child not as an example or not as an extension of your own identity or not as a burden, but you need to look at them as conduits through which we understand a right relationship with God. And, and you can think of it this way, right? You know, we feed the kids in our community, but what does the Lord's Prayer do? What do we say in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. We recognize that we are dependent on God for all the things of our life. We teach our children how to defer to grown-ups and to be respectful and polite, and God wants us to, 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 to respect and defer to him. We teach our kids, right, to, to, and we discipline and we correct them because we recognize that some impulsive behaviors can ruin their life later on, and we want them to grow up and, and to be able to control those impulses and to not be um, crazy kids the entire time, right? It's fine when they're little, but when they get to an adult, you got to rein that in. And God, the same way, he steps in and he corrects us and he disciplines us because he's, he's concerned about us. He wants to make sure that we keep the faith, that we live a life um, of faith so that we don't lose out on eternal life. And of course, you know, we forgive our kids all the time, right? That's the parable of the prodigal son. We forgive our kids all the time because we love them and we want to be with them no matter what, just in the same way that God forgives us uh, and wants to be with us no matter what. And so Jesus is inviting us to consider the smallness and the weakness of the child so that we might reflect on our smallness and our weakness and our dependence on our heavenly father. That we, the same way that a child interacts with us is the way Jesus wants us to interact with our Heavenly Father. So children are a lot more important than, than the ancient world thought, and, and perhaps we should be a little more open to the kids learning and growing in their own right as opposed to trying to dictate life for them because they are special to God as they are, and they are reflections of what a Christian life looks like. So that's marriage, that's family, that's uh, uh, kids, Let's talk about money. Our reading includes a famous story about a virtuous rich man who wants eternal life. Jesus, uh, he comes to Jesus, and he, he, he comes reverently, and he begs for insight. What do I have to do, Jesus? And Jesus asks this man, he says, have you obeyed the commandments? And he lists off six of them. Did you notice this? He lists off six. These are all commandments that do with loving the neighbor. And the man says, yes, I've done all those six. But if you know your top ten, if you know the big ten, you know, the first four have to do with loving God above everything else. And so then Jesus says, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And the man can't do it. He doesn't do it. Why doesn't he do it? Because he trusts his money more than he trusts God. So he does not have the virtue it takes to get eternal life. In fact, it's interesting in the medieval church, um, this, this story, it bothered people. It still bothers people today. It bothered people in the medieval church. They ended up giving this guy a name, because he appears in the other Gospels too. They gave him a name, and they gave him a backstory, and said that he was so distraught, he went away sad, he was so distraught, that after he heard Jesus rose from the dead, he did sell all of his things and go to the poor and join the church. And um, I don't know that that's true, in fact, but it goes to show how anxious we are about this story. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Does it mean to give up everything? And in the ancient world, there was this pairing. People thought that rich, if you were rich and you had money, it's because God was blessing you because you were doing things right. That was something that was true of people in Israel. They maybe selectively read some verses out of Proverbs and thought that was the case. They didn't read the book of Job or they didn't read through the Psalms, which say, you know, that's not always the case, that righteousness and wealth come together. But, 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 but they, they thought that if you were rich and you had things and you had opportunities, then, then God would bless you. And God had blessed you, and you were doing something right. 
Um, and you can tell because this story hits the whole community like a shock. What does Peter say? He says, well, if this guy can't be saved, who can? And he's got a point. He's like a Boy Scout uh, who gives to the poor and gives alms, and he, he, he knows his Bible, and he's, he's clearly reverent to Jesus, bowing down and falling at his feet and asking for help. I mean, you don't get much more sort of worldly virtuous than this guy, and Jesus says, nope, it's not enough. It's not enough. Again, every era and every age, we break upon the rocks of this story. Uh, as the, some of you are maybe not familiar, but some of you are. Every now and then, it's like most of you are going to miss a sermon illustration, but the one of you who gets it is going to have their world rocked. So I, I'm going niche here because, you know, it's, it's what the Wu-Tang Clan talked about in 1993 with their hit song, Cream, C-R-E-A-M. Some of you know what that acronym is, right? Cash rules everything around me. That's what they sang, and that's what they rapped about. And their whole song is about how this world is run by money and how frustrated and sad they are that to get money, these urban black men have to go and, and buy and sell drugs. So they believed, right, that, the, the, that cash rules everything around me. And, and, and it's the same mentality you see in a billionaire taking a flight to space that you see in sort of the socialist politician who, who's trying to redistribute the money to the angry, resentful person, the poor person on welfare, raging about uh, their life to, to, against the, the welfare state. We believe, right, in our time that cash rules everything around us. And if we want freedom, if we want independence, it looks like a, a, a little dollar bill with Benjamin Franklin's face on it. Um, the, the problem, of course, is not that the rich young ruler, um, the, the rich young man in our story, the problem isn't that he had money. It's that he trusted his money more than he trusted God. Um, that that his, his money was his way of navigating the world, and to give it all up and follow Jesus, he couldn't do it. He didn't trust God in that way. He, too, had the cream mindset. He, too, believed that cash ruled everything around him. And Jesus wants us to refocus and believe beyond cash. It's like, well, God rules everything around me. It's just G-R-E-A-M, green, makes a terrible acronym. <laughs> and so, so, so the point here is true, though. Right? God is looking for people to come to him as a child dependent on a parent. And wealth, and that's part of what Jesus is getting at, wealth makes that impossible, except with God all things are possible. And so we, we re-prioritize, we re-understand money in light of Jesus' death and resurrection too. So that's three countercultural understandings about the, 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 the ethical teachings in our text about marriage and kids and money. Marriage is held sacred in the highest esteem. It's, it's for both, blessed for both men and women. Kids model for us dependence and weakness in our relationship with God. Uh, and so we give them due care, love them accordingly, and money clouds and complicates our need for God. That's the, the gist of these readings today. And at the core of these readings actually lies the gospel itself. And that's the most important thing I want you to take away today. It's not that these are ethical teachings. It's that these three things tell us about the character and nature of a loving God who cares and redeems and saves the people he loves. Right? Why does God care so much about marriage? It's because marriage is an image of God's love for us, a holy analogy, as it were, a reflection on heavenly realities. When we look at the lifelong union between a man and a woman, um, we get a vision in Genesis 1 of God's desire to be in a lifelong union with us. And so when marriages uh, fall apart, when they, when, they, when they don't last, and we treat marriage flippantly, we're by proxy treating our relationship with God flippantly. 
And God says, no, I don't want that. I want a, a solid, lifelong relationship with you. And childhood, right, as an image of dependence, right, that, that has to do with God communicating to us about what it looks like to have the perfect heavenly father. Like, do you believe that God is a perfect heavenly father who cares for us in every way, whose love is just so one directional, he wants what's best for us no matter what? Do, do we believe that? Because if we believe that, then it's going to reflect in the way we treat the kids in our life. If God is our Heavenly Father and we have this dependence on him for our daily bread and everything else, then we're going to be much more open to treating the kids in our community with that same love and care that God gives to us. And and finally, when we talk about generosity and and poverty and, and charity at the end of the reading there, they reinforce the fact that we own nothing. We own nothing. Everything in this cosmos belongs to God. We've simply got it for a time because we're stewarding it for him until he returns. Nobody is rich. They have an abundance of God's money that they're taking care of. And nobody is poor. They're just waiting for their heavenly inheritance to be delivered. God is generous, and God gives without a second thought, whether it's the abundance of heaven or whether it's his only son. And that's why this teaching is reflective of the gospel. And so these three countercultural values that, that challenge that ancient world and our world today, they all reflect the gospel. And they're all signs, neon signs, that point to the fact, as Jesus said in our reading, that, that he comes to us as a servant who will die for us and give his life as a ransom for many. We follow the rabbit trail of these commandments back to the, Jesus himself, and we find the loving God who forgives our sins and rises from the dead. And that's the point of these things. In closing, I'd like to point out your, your bulletins, the, the front image of your bulletin. Just a quick look at this before we close today, because um, it's one of my favorite pieces, works of art. Um, this is uh, art from a, a German artist from the Reformation named Lucas Cronach the Younger. And at the time, many families would commission family portraits or portraits of a family, but they would couch them in greater biblical portraits. And so you might have a, a picture of Jesus, um, and he's teaching, and, and then you'd have the family members painted into the crowds. And, and one of the common themes of that day was to have Jesus blessing the children, and then he would put your children, the artist would put your children into the image. So when you hung it up in your room, it'd be like a family portrait, but it'd also be a, a portrait of the Bible, right? And so if you look at this one on the, on the cover of your bulletin, you see a lot of very normal things. You see mothers nursing their children. You see Jesus you know, taking a child into his arms and, and kissing and, and, and tenderly loving him. And, and those things are right and true and good, but let's look closely. See in the bottom left-hand corner there? You see a mother grabbing the arm of a child who'd rather run away and play with his toy horses than hang out with Jesus. <laughs> and and on, the, on the sort of center right there, do you see that the little boy has his sister's arm and is pulling it, and she's like crying out, and she's saying, let go, and, and they're fighting against each other right at Jesus' feet? What an odd thing to have painted and hung up in your living room. You know, how many of you have pictures blown up to, you know, you know um, uh, 24 by 36 in your living room, canvas prints of your children misbehaving and fighting with each other? None of you do, but this family did. This is what they had, and they're not the only ones. The reason why they had this painting, friends, is because in the Reformation, they recognized um, that it was all about the forgiveness of sins, and it was all about the gospel, and it was all about mercy and grace. And so it was, it was their way of saying, we may have enough money to put together a family portrait, but our hope is not in our money. It's in the forgiveness of sins. 
Somebody paid a lot of money here to show all of these themes at work, themes about marriage, themes about kids, themes about money. Because God loves us like Jesus loves, like a parent loves their disobedient kids and kicks them screaming and crying to Jesus when they want to go play with their horse toys. Um, that, that there's something theologically resonant about in this portrait um, that, that it puts God first. And it doesn't display happy, shiny people on the wall, but it displays us on the wall in our own frailties and our own sins. This painting is, isn't just art. It's a description of the gospel. And these teachings in our readings today are not just teachings, but they too are descriptions of the gospel. They're not just rules or virtues or vices. They're depictions of what God's love for us practically looks like. Jesus isn't just giving us instructions for life. He's telling the disciples how life will be in light of his death and resurrection. We don't just take them as ethical principles, but we can reverse engineer them to see the God behind them who loves and cares for us immeasurably. And so see in our reading today, friends, what the disciples missed. See how Jesus all along is giving us signs, both explicit and implicit in our reading, uh, about his work ahead and the nature of God's love. Like a husband giving everything for his bride, like a parent serving their child, like a rich man giving up everything for the sake of others, Jesus will lay down his life for those he loves. Show me a celebrity or a politician or a pop star who writes that kind of children's book, and I'll buy it. But until then, we only have Jesus, because only he loves us that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.